appreciated. It's always encouraging for the preacher when the message you bring is running right through the very beginning of the start of the meeting and right through it. This is where the exodus takes place. Have a great time this morning, kids. Just before um, Easter, it spoke about a tale of two mountains. Strictly speaking, it was really a tale of one mountain and a little hill. But we're going to focus not so much on the mountain this morning, but more upon the hill. See, the mountain that we spoke about was the Mount Sinai. And there the law was given. In Romans chapter 10, if you remember, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. The law points out sin. The law brings condemnation. The law couldn't bring righteousness. Couldn't make men righteous. And the law couldn't bring salvation. But Paul's plea for them, his prayer for them, though they lived under the law, trying to become perfect in all their ways, that they would discover the truths that you've discovered. If you know Jesus this morning, you know that you're not living under law now, but you are living under grace. And when Jesus came, He didn't come just to end the law, he came to fulfill it. In other words, the true purpose of the law to bring people into a righteous understanding of God would be seen through Jesus Christ. And it's not by works. It's not by some adherence to some creedal code or some set of rules and regulations that would bring you into an understanding of the Savior that we've been singing about this morning, the God that we worship and adore, the God whose voice has been proclaiming throughout history from one generation to another, it's by faith. It's by faith righteousness is accredited to you. You can't work enough to curry God's flavor, favor. You can't do everything possible in human terms to win over the love of Christ. The only thing that moves God is faith. The thing that moves God is belief in the one in whom he sent. And his word starts from the very beginning in Genesis and continues to be proclaimed right throughout the book and to Revelation. It's by faith you're saved. It's by faith you come to know him. You can be a great person this morning. You could do all the things right according to a kind of, um, uh, a kind of you know, human code. You can be the very epitome of humanity itself in all its goodness. 
For the Bible tells me that the heart is wicked and deceitful of all things. Now that's a hard truth for a good person to understand. But essentially it's not by works, but it's by your heart being moved by the love of God and the belief in Him. That's what salvation comes. We'll read something shortly just to explain this a little bit more. It says in, in Romans 10, verse 9, following, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Confession is a very important part of the Christian life. Words change environments. Words can change an atmosphere. I've been into homes over years and you just know full well there's been a full-blown World War III gone off. Nobody's said anything. Nobody's done anything. But you just know by the atmosphere in the house when they say, well, hello, pastor. You think, now let's get real. What's just gone on? You see it sometimes. You know when people rush into the meeting on a Sunday, they've just been kicking the cat, throwing the dog out, having a word with the missus, slap the kids one and that's it. And then it's like, well, glory to God, it's great to be here, brother. You just know. You just know that words have been spoken. And you know when words are spoken in the internal environment that says you're no good, you're worthless, that you know you're not a person of any credibility or worth, you just know you can see it in that person. They don't have to say anything. But in Christ, the confession is Jesus is Lord. Lord over circumstances, Lord over emotions, Lord, Lord over feelings, Lord over every disposition that you're coming into, Lord every trial and circumstance, and so on. He is Lord. Shouted from the highest hill. And yeah, no, what, sorry. He's Lord. He's in charge. Yes. We need to try and stop conning God about how we are. He knows every hair on our head. He just wants us to be honest. The realization of honesty to ourselves and to other people. Grace does that. The law doesn't. The law wants us to hide our sin because it brings condemnation. And none of us wants to feel condemned. I thank God I'm living under grace. I have to believe in, yes, in this single factor. I believe, by the way, the worship team, those of you who weren't here, you missed a fabulous song last Sunday. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit and the life that he brings. I believe in the crucifixion. I believe in the resurrection. Oh, and I believe 
is coming again. I believe it's coming again. So let our songs be more than anthems. Let our praise be more than these kind of things. He's coming again. He's coming again. The Lord doesn't reveal that to you. Grace does. And we're living under grace. So if you can confess that Jesus is Lord because you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're someone here this morning, you don't know Jesus, your heart's not been moved by his love and his grace and mercy for you, I trust it will be this morning. And you believe in the power of the resurrection. You see, that is the great distinctive before, between any other religion. Because if Christ only died, then where's the hope? If Christ only died, he was just a good man, like other good men have died. If Christ just died, it was like the law, dead. But if he was raised from the dead, there's hope. If he's raised from the dead, that means I also can be in resurrection life. If he's raised from the dead, he's conquered everything the devil could throw at him. He's conquered the dead. He's conquered death. He's overcome the tomb. It's empty. The stone has been rolled away. And he stepped out to reveal his manifest glory, his transcendence over death itself. That means his word is totally reliable. Because he said that's what would happen. Raised on the third day. The disciples couldn't understand it. Pilate didn't want it. The Pharisees would object to you that it would happen. Oh, but glory to God. Glory to God. You and I are here this morning living under grace and can know the resurrection life of Jesus. So I don't want to focus on Mount Sinai this morning. I want to focus on a little hill just outside of Jerusalem's gates. And yet something far greater I would put to you took place on that little hill rather than a big mountain in Sinai. The songs call it Calvary. Golgotha. The place of the skull. But it was the place of the most amazing, significant act that one single man carried out. And that was willingly to die on a cross. That the sins of humanity will be laid upon him. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. Jesus, the gift of God to the whole world. Jesus, who cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
when we take the bread and the wine. You can either see it as a very sombering moment, but I have to say, for me, it's a resurrection moment. It's a life moment. It's a love moment. It's a mercy moment. It's a grace moment. It's a relationship moment. Relationship with Him and relationship with one another. Life in Him and life together. By the way, I've not gone, you know, just, just, just seems to be that way. In Psalm 85, 10, I mentioned this before, it is one of my favorite, favorite verses in the whole of the New Testament, in the whole of the Scriptures. It says, Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The King James Version says, Mercy and truth meet together. Loving, loving kindness, truth, faithfulness meet together righteousness and peace kiss each other now when the psalmist was moved to write this he wasn't looking at Calvary I would suggest but you can just hear and you can see you can just sense Jesus in this you can just kind of know that there's no greater example of love and faithfulness meeting together God so loved the world he gave his one and only son. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. What greater, you know, what greater gift can a man give than to lay down his life for one another? What love that was shown there. Love. Faithfulness. Truth. My word will not return void. And so the words of the prophets were being fulfilled at Calvary. The words of Isaiah ring out. The words of Ezekiel. The words of Jeremiah. We come all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and we can hear the voice of the Spirit saying, Calvary's coming. Calvary's coming. Well, like we said the other week, the old preacher said, well, it's Friday, but hallelujah, Sundays are coming. We don't stick with Friday. We go with the Sundays. You can't have peace unless you have righteousness. And the substitutionary death of Jesus, his place our place, sorry, taking. He, he took our place upon him to fulfill righteousness and bring peace with God. All love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. These are the very attributes of God. Love, faithfulness, righteousness. Peace. 
the cry and plea of grace comes from Calvary. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is a different word. Forgiveness here is a different word to one we're going to look at in a few moments. The word there just means to send away. To release from. Judgment. Death. But the grace that we read of in Ephesians 4.32 is all about Sorry, the forgiveness we read about at the end of that chapter is a different word. Forgiveness. And it comes from grace. And it means extending favor to someone. Leaning towards someone. But the fundamental message of that kind of forgiveness is this. Jesus prayed in the first instance, Father, forgive them. But in Ephesians chapter 4, it's us forgiving. So Calvary says, send, release them from the guilt. The Holy Spirit is speaking to his church and said, just as the Father's released you from guilt, so you, by a divine attribute in you, by a conscious will, you say, I forgive. But it goes more than that. It extends itself more and more into the family of grace. It says, Brian, I want the very best for you. God. You know, I, I forgive you. But now I want the very best for you. When you're at that place in your Christian life, you truly are in a mature place. When you can either say or consider within your heart someone who's hurt you. Someone who's perhaps even damaged you. And you can say, Father, I forgive them. Now, give your very best to them. That's awesome, isn't it? But you go beyond mercy when you do that. And you're moving into the realms of true grace. So I just want to spend a few minutes now speaking about the power of grace. Favor is often said as a definition of grace. Unmerited favor. No conditions attached. No strings attached apart from belief in him. It means being well disposed towards. It also means a willingness to share in the benefits of something or someone. So when the Lord saved you, he leaned towards you, he was well disposed towards you, and he wants you and I to share in all of his benefits. To share in his benefits. But this is a holy and a just and a righteous God. And I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. Hallelujah. But yes, he wants me to share in his benefits. The power of grace arises out of his covenant loyalty and his covenant love for people. You have the loyalty of God 
on your side this morning. You have the love of God working in you this morning. That's what grace does. Jesus was full of grace and truth. So by definition, if we have the Spirit of Christ, and I, this might be very simplistic, but I like simplistic things, that means we also can be full of grace and truth. The Spirit of Christ cannot be one thing to, you know, and be another thing to us. He's always fully consistent with who He is. And He wants you to get to understand what the benefits are that God wants to share with us. And so the power of grace, first of all, is the grace to serve. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. The grace to save. Starting at verse 1, reading from the NIV. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest we were by nature, objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us, to do. Once you were estranged, you were alienated, you were an enemy of God. But now by his great love, by his grace and mercy, he's brought you near. And now he wants to share his benefits with you. Getting to know him. Having a clean heart. A mind at spirit of peace. Plans to be fulfilled, works to be done. He can show you off as his treasured possession. He wants to put you on, and I say this in the right way, on display to the ages in which we live. And in the age to come. Always uncomfortable. Love. Three times in a few verses, he says, Grace, grace, grace. Grace, you've been saved. Not by works. That's the law. Grace, you've been saved. Grace. You see, grace changes our spiritual condition. 
outside of Christ. We are dead in our sin. We are dead in our transgressions. Sin separates us from God, but grace reconciles us. Sin brought death. For the wages of sin, Paul writes in Romans, is death. But grace brings life. For the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. Sin destroys because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. All but grace heals and restores. It heals and restores. Don't become so familiar with grace it has no longer effect on you. Study it. Meditate on it. Ponder on it. Think on it. And appropriate it. Paul's own testimony in 1 Timothy 1 where he speaks about how he was. He was a blasphemer. He persecuted the church. He knew full well where he was at and yet he was zealous for the law. And yet he writes these things because he was like this as well. But now, thank God, to his grace has brought him through that. And he's now an apostle, a ministry of Christ. Oh. If you don't understand grace, read the letters of Paul. Understand the pastoral letters of Paul himself. I'm glad that God changed my spiritual condition because once I was in darkness I was dead in my sin but now I live in light I live in life and I live in the power of the resurrection in 2 Corinthians 12 7 to 10. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 12. Yeah, 7 to 10. Paul writes this. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Grace, then, is there to strengthen. In the West, we like rationalism. 
You mean you welcome sickness? You mean you embrace insults? You counted joy when you faced with many trials? Doesn't quite resonate right with us, does it? We just want to fight them. We want to resist them. We want to cut trials and sufferings short because we don't like them. And I'm not for one minute saying you should like them. But I am saying don't try and cut them short. You will have no faith if you didn't have testings. If you didn't have trials, how can you say you have faith? And you'll never experience the full grace of God unless you come to terms with the fact that suffering happens, trials happen, persecution happens, challenges to Christianity happens, but, but, His grace is sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient. Every time I come and minister, you know, whether you think it's good or bad, for me, I know that His grace is sufficient. When I'm in pain in the morning, I can say, Lord, I know your anointing and your grace is going to be sufficient for me. And hallelujah, it is. Glory to God. Hallelujah. And that same grace at work in me is obviously available for you. Because in my weakness, in your weakness, he perfects his strength. Don't be impatient where the suffering Don't be impatient when there's challenges. Say, Lord, I'm going to embrace this now because you're going to teach me something. You're going to show me something. But right now, the one thing I am asking for you, because you love me, I need the grace that's sufficient for me to the day thereof. You see, we have this thing sometimes in the Christian world where everything has to be perfect, lovely, and wonderful. And we go around with this supercilious grin on our face because we're on a planet, Christian, and nothing ever happens there, does it? Except good things. No, 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 no. We live in a fallen world. And just as the sun shines on the righteous, it shines on the evil. Just as the rain falls upon the unrighteous, it falls upon the evil. And you are not immune from that. But you can, in God's timing, Know something far greater than a trial. You can understand that His grace is sufficient for you. In all, and I'll underline it, all circumstances. You can be in trials and you can still have joy. You can face a challenge but you can still have peace. You can be in pain but you can know the comfort of the Lord. His grace is all sufficient. This thorn that Paul speaks about, many have waxed lyrical over the generations. Well, I wonder if it was a sickness. I wonder if it was some kind of emotional problem he had. Was it some of the Jews that seemed to follow him everywhere and give him stick? Well, I don't know what it was. 
and neither does anybody else because Paul is not very specific about it. What he does say, I prayed three times and then he comes to the realization, actually his grace is sufficient for him. And he's come to realization that humility is the key. You see, we all have thorns. And the literal meaning of this is not just a spiky piece of little thorn. It can be like a tent stake that's driven in. Think about the pain and the destruction and the discomfort that that would do. And that's the kind of thorn that Paul is talking about. And let me tell you, you've not had a revelation like he's had. When you've been into the third heaven and you've seen paradise, maybe then we can say, well, I'm just like Paul. I'm just like him. No, you're not. You weren't like him. You may be moving in that direction, but I don't know anybody yet who's been to the third heaven and come back. You see, he was moving in a revelation that you and I would surely desire to. But, the cost of it. The cost of it. And he came to realize that in essence this is all about humility and just relying on God for for strength. We, We all have thorns, you know. You may have a physical thorn. You may have an emotional thorn. You may have a mixture of the two. It might be a social thorn. Often it's pride. You know, we have an overinflated sense of importance of ourselves. Our self-worth is good. I mean, he died for you. That should make you feel good. Self-esteem's good. But when we start to think we're way up there, we have this kind of, this overrated self-importance kind of mindset. Beware, pride sets in. Humility is meekness. And meekness is being dependent on Him. And to know your role before Him. Humility is a wonderful thing. Meekness is a tremendous thing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, Jesus considered meekness, humility, not a weakness, but a strength. Beware of pride. It's destructive. It can devour you. And perhaps one reason we have a thorn or thorns it stops us being preoccupied with self and learns that grace is sufficient. And out of that he will be glorified. I think it's one reason why God picks weak people. To say, well, that person could never have done that. The one I know. Something has happened. It's called grace. And then finally, before we come into... Yes, there's a finally, folks. 
but before we take the bread and the wine. Grace to serve. 2 Corinthians 8. Grace to serve, or to put it another way, grace to give and grace to be sacrificial in serving. 2 Corinthians 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. What a contradiction. Extreme poverty, yet welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they didn't do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. The Macedonian churches were basically the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, and the church in Berea. Corinth was down in the south. And yet these, and the Corinthian church had much. But the Philippian church and the church of the Thessalonians didn't appear to have a lot. But you know, it's not a matter of what you have. It's a matter of what you keep that's important to God. And they give according to their ability. And they went beyond their ability and gave. It's like the widow's might. She could have kept it, but she gave beyond her ability. How much do we give to the Lord. This is first of all speaking not about a financial contribution though it is. The emphasis here is first Paul says, they gave themselves to the Lord. You can't really move generously in giving beyond your ability unless you first give yourself to the Lord. We take up tithes. The tithes, the Bible tells me, is to the Lord. The offerings are for other things. But the tithe belongs to the Lord to further his work. If you're not tithing, you need to tithe. To enjoy the blessing of God. Because you're fully given to the ways of the Lord. problem, come and talk to me. I'll teach you about tithing. But it's not just about money. Because when you first give yourself to the Lord, you will serve Him in whatever capacity He wants you to serve Him. You will serve where there's need. 
start with. No buts. No conditions attached. It's like sometimes, I'm very naughty actually, I walk in and I'll, I'll see a piece of paper on the floor. I'll ignore it because I want to see who's going to pick it up. It's not down to him. Not down to him. You see the paper, pick it up. Now, it's a very kind of simplistic kind of thing, isn't it? But no, it's not because it teaches me about an attitude. It tells me about an attitude. The musicians are here at 9.30. You think he's not going to move in grace any minute now. They're here at 9.30. People arrive late in the church. It has to stop. They're here, ready, prayed, prepped up to help you worship the Lord. I'm here early, early. Brian's here at goodness knows whatever time. The intercessors have already been in. And we arrive late. You wouldn't rely, you wouldn't come late if the queen herself was waiting for you in this building, would you? I don't think you would, unless you were total anarchist and anti-royalist. Do you think if anybody in power or authority, you will be there probably five, ten minutes early. You don't arrive late. I had this in India once, operating on India time. Stop the meeting. I said, this afternoon we're going to start at 1.30 English time. But yeah, right. Here, let me pose a question to you. The governor of this particular state I was in wants to see you. And he wants to see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. What time are you going to be there for? Brother, we'll be there for 9 o'clock. But he's a man. Oh, but he's a very powerful man. So you accord to him more respect and honor than you do to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. This is India. No, 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 you've just proved you can be somewhere early if you really want to be. They were moved by fear. They're very powerful men. They were moved by fear. I pray to God a fear will come upon the church of his holiness and his reverence as well as his divine favor and grace. Now I realize some of you may not turn up at all next week. But if that was the case, you just answer some questions for me. Sometimes I've been tempted to close the door at 10.30. I'm not at the guts for it yet. I'm sorely tempted sometimes. We ought to be the best timekeepers in the world. Break the habit. Break the pattern. Moving grace. 
say, God, I just can't wait to get to that meeting. And if you can't wait to get to the meeting, go and find a meeting that you can get to quickly. Because as for me and my house, we want to serve the Lord. And I want to serve Him where He's put us. And I want to do that to the best of my ability. It's sacrificial, folks. Because first, we give ourselves to the Lord. And everything flows from that. Amen? I trust you won't feel too downcast. I trust you'll understand that grace has a disciplinary factor as well as a love factor. But then love has boundaries. It has disciplines. And I care so much for you and your soul and for your spirit. And this isn't a coercive statement, by the way. I care so much about you being on display as part of the Lord's glory in this land. This is why I speak to you the way that I do. Study grace. Moving grace. And give grace out. Amen.